Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. I'm Associate Pastor Scott Farrell, and today I'll be preaching from Esther chapter 9 and chapter 10. You know, with all the trouble in the world, it might feel like that God is losing. But today we receive assurance from God's Word that Christ is faithful to preserve His church. Be sure to like and subscribe. Uh, hit that little bell icon down there uh, so that you won't miss a thing. God bless you. Well, hello. For those of you who don't know me, I am the associate pastor at Warrington Bible Fellowship. My name is Scott Farrell. And uh want to welcome, once again, everyone uh, in our extended church uh, uh, through YouTube and Facebook and elsewhere, and I uh, want to remind you that today is Communion Sunday, so this might be a good time to grab uh, some juice and, and a piece of bread, uh, because we're going to celebrate the Lord's table a little later on today. Uh, meanwhile, go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to the very last two chapters of Esther. Esther chapter 9 and a little teeny chapter, chapter 10. Today we are finishing the story of Esther. Now this is a wonderful tale that never mentions God, and yet it's all about God. This is a story that begins and ends with a corrupt king who is easily manipulated, but his sin and his faults as a king only serve to highlight how great and perfect our true king is. It's a story that highlights the difference between pure evil in the person of Haman and the pure holiness of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and of his Father in heaven, God the Father Almighty. It's a story that demonstrates how God exalts a humble Esther and Mordecai to very high places to fulfill his will and how he protects his people by bringing down the exalted, the proud, to their proper place of destruction. This is a story about how God is faithful to his people. No one can stop God from being faithful. No one. And that is the passage that, that uh, Philip just meditated on in the catechism. So as we wrap up this story in Esther, we're going to see uh, today a great truth and one that these days might be a, maybe a little hard for us to fathom Maybe a little hard for us to get our minds and our hearts around. And that truth is this, that Christ is faithful to preserve his church. Christ is faithful to preserve his church. You see, from the Bible's perspective, there's no doubt about it. There's no doubt about it that the church will survive even in our times. And this is as sure as God protects his people in the book of Esther. But we live in a pretty messed up world, don't we? And we might be wondering, well, can God really handle all of this? Can he, re can he really handle this? And so by way of example, I read uh, yesterday a, a startling article from a, uh, a news organization called Axios. And it said that all of the old vices, from sex to gambling to drugs, are becoming legal as society and the criminal justice system rethink American values. Isn't that something? The article goes on to point out that Manhattan is no longer going to prosecute sexual crimes, and surely many localities are to follow. 
Oregon has become the first state to decriminalize possession of small amounts of all illicit drugs. And more localities are sure to follow. Axios goes on to say that an estimated 45.2 million people, that's 12% of our country, is going to gamble on the NFL this season, and that's because of relaxed laws having to do with, with gambling in multiple states. The number of states is growing that is allowing that to occur. And we know what goes along with that. And we know that gambling is not a good use of the money that God has given us. Along with that, all of that shift in morality, we also have been mourning uh, for the last uh, 40 to 50 years that six to 700,000 babies are aborted every year in the United States, worldwide, get this, worldwide that number is going to be close to 33 million babies killed this year. And that's more than one per second. We're all very familiar as well with the efforts to redefine gender, redefine marriage, redefine the church, redefine everything, as long as it opposes the biblical worldview, as long as we can make a new definition that opposes that evil God of the Bible. Axios again. The definition of vice is always shifting in America. Get this, because society's morality is always shifting. Well, we know because of Christ, we know that true morality never changes because God's holiness never changes. Amen? But that's not what the world wants to believe. The world wants morality to be negotiable. The world wants spirituality to be negotiable. The world wants everything to be negotiable. And one of the key factors in that moral slide is that there just aren't as many Christians in the world today. There are not as many people who go to church. Even from a secular sense, Jesus simply isn't as popular in our culture anymore as he once was, and that's having a profound effect on our culture. But you know, we're not here this morning to criticize the world for acting as, as the world. I mean, for acting as though they don't know Christ, because after all, they don't know Christ, right? How could, how could we expect them to behave any differently? How could we expect them to behave in a holy way when they don't know the author of holiness? And we can pause here and take a look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how can we behave in an unholy way when we do know the author of holiness? So all to say, as we sit here today, it can feel like God is losing. And it can feel like that the church might just wither away in another couple of generations, if even that as the culture turns more and more and more against our Lord and pressures us to compromise on things that we know are absolutely true. And so as the story of Esther closes today, God is reminding us that he will always preserve his church. And that's very good news. And that's because this story of Esther has taught us that God is sovereign over all things, even the efforts of evil men. 
God will preserve his church because he is ever faithful. We believe what Psalm 119.90 says. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. And so through Christ, God will preserve his church. He will be faithful to preserve his church. That's our truth for today. And that's exactly where we started in the book of Esther. And it's exactly where we're going to end. Back in February, in chapter 1 of Esther, we saw a glimpse of how God is faithful to save His own, and how the salvation story in Esther is a, is a small picture of how God has saved us permanently through His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we get to see that salvation happen for the Jews, and at the same time, we get to celebrate our permanent salvation in Christ. And so, in chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see first in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 9, a new direction. Then we're going to see a new holiday uh, in verses 17 through 32. And then finally, in this very short chapter that ends the book of Esther, we're going to see a new reality. And so for the sake of time, I'm not going to read both chapters. That would take us a little while. But allow me to read for us uh, what I think is the key uh, uh, passage, uh, which is in chapter 10, this very short chapter, Uh, And so let's prepare our hearts to receive the Word of God. This is the Word of God from Esther chapter 10. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all of the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings and of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's look first at verses 1 through 16 of chapter 9, where we see a new direction. In fact, a new direction that continues. You'll remember from last week that, that Esther uh, uh, is, is a story that is written using a literary technique called a chiasm. Uh, that this is when the events of the story uh, lead to a high point in the story, and then similar events go sort of in reverse order. This is an artistic way uh, to retell even real events like Esther, so that certain elements of the story are emphasized. So in Esther, the high point of the story, you remember, is in chapter 6, when, when the king couldn't sleep. What a coinkydink, right? Uh, we know that God had something to do with this. Uh, the king couldn't sleep, and so he had one of his, his people uh, read for him the book of records, which is kind of like reading the telephone book, I'm sure. And so he's reading the the book of records and he realizes that he's never honored Mordecai the Jew who uh, revealed a a plot to assassinate the king and therefore Mordecai saved the king's life. And, And it was a great offense not to honor Mordecai. And this is where everything changes. And we see the story just go in reverse. And, 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 and we see uh, uh, how uh, all of the plans of Haman go in the opposite direction that he wants things to go. His plan to annihilate all of the Jews because of his, his uh, hatred of the Jews. Now, 
Since the late Haman had written his decree by the king's authority, the king had given him his signet ring. And remember that the king's decree cannot be revoked. In other words, the king can't just say, oops, sorry about that, that's nullified now. He can't do that. Because of that, Esther and Mordecai have to come up with a new decree in chapter 8, Stamped again with the king's approval and authority, but this new decree contradicts Haman's decree. And this is the reversal. And so instead of Haman's plan that the people of the Persian Empire would would gang up to kill the Jews, to murder them on the 13th day of Adar, Esther and Mordecai's decree gives the Jews permission not only to defend themselves against their enemies, But they have the king's blessing to go on the offensive toward those who want to kill them. And that's exactly what they do. As verse 1 says, they gain mastery over their enemies. This isn't a passive defense. They gain mastery over their uh, enemies. And and even the government officials are now in fear of Mordecai and, and fall over themselves to help Mordecai. Because Mordecai is the king's new right-hand man. And so they do all that they can to help him in verse 3. And then in verse 5, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, they killed 500 men, plus all of Haman's sons. You remember how proud Haman had been about his sons. Well, not only is Haman dead now, but all of his sons are dead. And then in the following verses, Esther asks for another day for the Jews to be able to kill more of their enemies. And the numbers end up to be staggering, just staggering. In Susa, uh, they kill 300 more men, and throughout the empire of Persia, they kill 75,000 men. That's a lot of death. And so how is it that a God that we know cherishes life, how is it that we as Christians can proclaim our, our opposition to the evil of abortion and say that God would sanction something like that? That's a great question. It's a very penetrating question, and people have legitimately asked that through the centuries. They've demanded answers regarding any passage where God commands his people to annihilate the enemies of the Jews. For instance, in relation to our story here in Esther, God had commanded Saul to kill all of the Amalekites. And who were the Amalekites? This was generations before. The Amalekites are Haman's ancestors. And so, it was, but Saul disobeyed. But if Saul had not disobeyed, there would not have been a Haman, would there? And there would be no evil plan to annihilate the Jews. So why would God, a loving God, order the destruction of thousands of people? Well, let's turn to the Word of God to find out why. And this has a lot to do with another great reversal. This time, the final judgment of mankind. And we read about it, among other places, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 
beginning in verse 5. This is what Paul writes. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay affliction, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, God has every right to judge mankind. He created us, after all, and He is holy, and we are not. He has the right to exact vengeance on those who have spent their lives rejecting him to the very end. And since he's made a promise, first to the Jews, to faithfully preserve them, and now to us, his church, God has not only every right to defend us, but to remove every danger from us. His fierce protection of us, as as Peter calls the church, uh, we are a people for his own possession, And so God's fierce protection of his own possession is a sign of his love and his care for us. You know, we went to war against terrorism with the same idea, didn't we? The only way we can be safe is if we defend ourselves against danger and even go on the offensive against danger when the danger is real. Well, the danger is real to us. And so God has promised us safety in Him. We believe Psalm 46.1, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Well, there's going to come a day when that trouble will be gone. (laughs) There will be no sin. There will be no sorrow. There will be no evil people around to urge us to compromise. And so it only follows that to truly save us when God consummates our salvation in the second coming of Christ, that he will in the end do this to those who reject him. In 2 Thessalonians, back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this time verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's simply God's justice and judgment which not only he has the right to exact, but the result of that will be that God is glorified when we enjoy his salvation. He will be marveled at among all those who have believed in verse 10. That's what we're going to do. We're going to marvel and celebrate at what he's done. We're going to marvel because he has chosen to save us even when we were his enemy. So in chapter 9 of Esther, as violent as it is, it's a small picture of how God is going to preserve us to the end and on into eternity. The the short-term solution for the Jews in the Persian Empire was to kill as many of their enemies as they could. But God, in the end, will rightly and justly command everyone who rejects Him, as Christ puts it in Matthew 25, 41, "'Depart from me, you cursed.'" into the eternal fire prepared for the devil 
and his angels. So Christ will preserve his church. He will preserve us as spotless. Spotless because of the blood of Christ, not because of anything that we've done. But he will preserve his church, won't he? Just as Haman could not outmuscle God, nobody, nobody in this day and age can outmuscle God either. It's just not going to happen. Shouldn't that give us some comfort? Not just some, but a whole lot of comfort. Nobody can outmuscle God. Yeah, it seems like God is losing today, doesn't it? But you can count on there being a new direction in the end at the time of God's own choosing. And so that's the new direction that we see in Esther. Next, we see a new holiday in verses 17 through 32 of chapter 9. You see, the natural thing for the Jews to do after their enemies are put into place is to celebrate, right? Of course. That's what we would do too. That's exactly what they do in verses 17 through 32. Since God has, has saved them on such a massive scale, it's only fitting uh, that they set aside a, a, a couple of days to commemorate what God has done. Remember that by the end of chapter 3, speaking of a reversal, that the Jews were in a state of terror and confusion. In chapter 4, Mordecai was grieving in sackcloth and ashes. But now the reversal is complete, so it's time to celebrate. It's time to celebrate. So verse 19, Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, and as a holiday, as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And then in the following verses, uh, Mordecai puts his official stamp of approval uh, on this. He establishes the holiday. But notice in verse 21 that he's writing letters to whom? Not the whole Persian Empire, but to the Jews. He's only writing to the Jews. This wasn't a holiday that King Ahasuerus is establishing. This is a, a holiday that is established by Mordecai, and it is for the Jews alone. And so they called the annual holiday Purim, which of course is based on the Persian word for lots or casting lots. You see, casting lots is what Haman had depended on to establish what he thought was going to be the day of Holocaust for the Jews. And so in verse 27, the Jews fully obligate themselves to observe Purim. And then in verse 28, that these days should, uh, the, uh, Mordecai establishes that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And in fact, the Jews celebrate Purim to this day, the next uh, Feast of Purim or the celebration of Purim is in March. And what they're going to do is, is this is a day, a couple of days, two days for them to remember the, the unmentioned main character of, of the book of Esther, that is God. And they have a lot of fun celebrating. 
They give gifts to each other as, as uh, Esther directs them to do. They read the story of Esther, and this is kind of funny. Every time uh, the, the name of Haman is mentioned, they make all kinds of racket, and they boo, and they hiss, and they've got noisemakers and stuff, and they make a big to-do about that. And then when, uh, whenever the names of Esther and Mordecai, and this is more of a modern development, whenever their names are mentioned, they cheer and they clap and, and, and rejoice. And then, of course, it's a feast, so they eat a meal. It's called the Suda, and they give each other gifts of food. And for dessert, they eat something that is named after Haman, Hamantaschen, or Hamantaschen. And this is a triangle-shaped cookie that, depending on who bakes the cookies, are either really good or really dry and not so good. <laughs> I get that on good authority as I looked it up and a Jewish woman talked about how they, the cookies were pretty awful when she was growing up. So. And so just like the Jews of Persia, they're celebrating. We have a reason to celebrate too. And we have a feast to commemorate the salvation of our Lord, which we'll get to in just a second. But the salvation that Christ has given us is not temporary. You see, the Jews in Esther's day still lived under a whimsical, fickle, easily manipulated king who really had no morals. What they needed was what we have today, and that is the promise of Christ who declared, it is finished. It is finished. And so while we still live in a very imperfect world, the work of Christ is finished. That is the work of salvation. And what Christ did on the cross and then in his resurrection, guarantees our hope for eternal life. It is a guarantee. Hebrews 7.22 declares that Christ is the one who guarantees a better covenant. That is, that the new covenant is better than the old covenant under the law, which could not really save. It was simply a picture of salvation, just like this story of Esther is a picture of salvation. The salvation of Christ is genuine. And this new covenant comes with the promise of eternal security, not just temporary relief from enemies. In fact, listen to these words of our Lord in John 10, verses 28 through 30. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Did you hear that? I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Isn't that good news? Isn't that the best news you've heard all day? I hope so. And so the, the feast that we're about to eat today, our communion, the Lord's table, instead of celebrating a temporary salvation, is one that celebrates true hope, true eternal hope, true life, eternal life. We do this at least once a month in our denomination. Many denominations uh, do this every Sunday. In fact, down at Trinity Lutheran, uh, every single week they celebrate the Lord's table. And we're going to do this today. And in doing this together, 
having this feast together, we're, we're participating in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and we're looking forward to that sure hope of eternal life that his resurrection from the dead absolutely guarantees us. If Christ had not risen from the dead, we would only be hoping. But we have hope. And every Sunday, we gather to celebrate Christ saving us from our sins. You see, it's not just an occasional thing that we do once a year, have two days of celebration that we're saved. No. Every Sunday, we gather as the church, the body of Christ, the church that he has established, the church not being a human invention, but a church that Christ is gathering to himself a people set apart, a people for his own possession. We gather together and we celebrate how he saved us from our sins. It is finished. And we should always remind ourselves to go one step further and remember that we are also saved from the eternal wrath of God. We are brought into paradise by God, eternal fellowship with Him. And that's why we celebrate. We feast on the fellowship of believers in this room and in the the extended church. Our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ nourishes us and sustains us as we walk with the Lord, even in this dreadful time. And if you're on the fence about church, about whether you should come, Well, let me tell you, you need the church more than ever now because you need, you need this fellowship of believers because we speak into each other's lives. We are imperfect at best, but we speak into each other's lives. We nurture and sustain one another. We give each other encouragement. We pray together. And that's all by getting to know each other and committing ourselves to one another. That's what the church is all about. And so how will Christ preserve his church? (laughs) Well, it's an easy answer, by giving us eternal life. (laughs) The church is going to last forever. As As we said last week, forever is a long time. The church will never end. Talk about a new direction. Before we knew Christ, we were his enemies. We were doomed to eternal destruction, just like the Jews were in Esther under Haman's plan. But now we're headed for eternal paradise. So talk about a new holiday. It's a holiday that lasts forever, and it begins today. And we celebrate every day, all day long, all year long. And even forever, we celebrate our salvation because of Christ. And so next we see a new reality in chapter 10. The Jews are celebrating it now, very appropriately, at least once a year, and that's because they're living in a new reality, at least for a time. The new reality is that one of their own is at the right hand of the king. Did you catch that? 
He is at the right hand of the king. He has the power to watch over the Jews, to protect them, and to make sure that their needs are taken care of. Who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty for us? This is the advantage of the ascension that that Philip was talking about during catechism. He is there to advocate for us and to intercede for us. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty who towers over any earthly king. And as Christ intercedes for us, this again is the passage that Philip turned to. The Lord must want us to read this again. Romans 8, 34 and 35, who is to condemn? You see, nobody can take us, our, 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 our Lord away from us. And nobody can take us away from him. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Isn't that good news? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or anything else in this world, nothing, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. Now, Mordecai was so popular among the Jews because in the last verse, he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. What a beautiful new reality for the Jews. They no longer needed to fear the fickle whims of an evil ruler, and they could rest easy at least as long as Mordecai lived. But you see, isn't that the point of salvation? Welfare and peace? That those who are rescued can can go home and, and rest and carry on with their lives. And so when we were saved, our first response, I hope, was to celebrate. Oh, if we could capture that excited feeling now for those of us who've been believers for a long time and just not be able to wait to tell people about Jesus. We're saved and we have been rescued. And so the Jews celebrated together and we celebrate together as the church because our rescue is permanent. Christ himself declared that no one can snatch us from his protection. God will preserve his church, brothers and sisters. He is faithful to do so. Why? Because it belongs to him. We belong to him. That's our new reality. We don't need to worry about whether the church is going to survive. All we got to do is make sure that we fulfill the great commission and explain the hope that we have in us with gentleness and respect to a world that really has no idea what welfare and peace is, to a world that has no idea what gentleness and respect is to a world that has no idea how magnificent God's grace is. We can do that. We can proclaim His excellent mercies because our reality is eternal welfare and peace. And so as we declared over and over last week, 
This is something to celebrate forever and ever and ever. And forever is a very, very long time. Hallelujah and amen. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you for our salvation. There is mystery in our salvation. We do not understand. We confess how so many cannot be saved. But Father, we trust that you are the wise, holy God you claim to be. And we put our trust in you for our salvation. And we know that by the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to you. Not just for a a moment, not just for our lives here on earth, but for eternity. And we praise you that we get to be with you for eternity, which never, ever, ever ends. Hallelujah and amen. Well, brothers and sisters, let's now celebrate our salvation in the feast that our Lord told us to partake of, the Lord's table. Now, these uh, communion cups, I'll show you here in a second if you're not familiar with these. They're a little complicated. There are COVID communion cups. There's a little purple film on top that you got to peel back and you get the wafer and then you pull back the whole thing uh, to get to the juice, uh, but we'll eat each uh, together. Uh, so in a moment, we'll, we'll pray again. Brothers and sisters, this piece of bread that you hold in your hand represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. God come in the flesh for our sake. And this body rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Our Lord rose bodily from the dead. And so as we take and eat, let's celebrate what Christ has done for us. Now likewise, this bit of juice that we're about to drink represents the blood of Christ. Proof that his life was poured out for us. That Christ died. And so as we marvel at what he has done, we also marvel at the fact that death did not defeat him. He defeated death. He defeated our arch enemy, 
forever and ever and ever. So take and drink. Holy God, you are so, so good to us. Again, beyond our comprehension to understand. But Lord, we're glad that you, you love us so much that you sent your Son to die for us so that we might be saved. We thank you, Father, that we will get to spend eternity with you, that we will get to celebrate forever. And we thank you that that celebration is right now as well. That we celebrate today and tomorrow and Tuesday and all of next week and next month and next year and forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, go in that peace, brothers and sisters. Go in the welfare and the peace that our Lord has given you. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us. God bless you. Have a great week.